While planning this episode of The Scene and the Unseen, I was filled with gratitude at one point. Gratitude for my independence. No one tells me who to call on my show or what to discuss. As far as the content of the show is concerned, I'm a one-man team. As far as the production of it is concerned, I had teamed up with a podcast production house for a while, but now I produce the show myself. I've contracted with my editor Vijay Doifode and my illustrator Alika Gupta, and while we work together, I make all the decisions. No Maibab interferes from on top. And I have no difficulty distributing the show and getting to such a vast audience. It would not be like this if I worked for a mainstream media house today, even if I would have made much more money working for one. I thought of this while reading the excellent book Twitter and Tear Gas by Zenep Tufekci, where she quoted a journalist in Turkey who once said the following words to her, which frankly could be said in India in 2020. The unnamed journalist said, quote, I first censor myself, as I know I'll be in trouble if I write something critical of the government. And then my editor censors me, if I haven't been mild enough. And then owners of the newspaper also check to make sure nothing too critical gets through. And if something is published anyway, especially if in defiance, someone from the government calls our boss. And then the tax inspectors are sent in to find something to find the newspapers with. Stop quote. This quote is from Turkey, and this kind of clampdown of the media ensures that the media can often be a propaganda machine. Take the problem of the Kurds, for example. The Turkish people were constantly brainwashed with misinformation about the Kurds. For example, Tufekci writes, quote, During the military regime of the 1980s, the Kurds were referred to in the mass media as mountain Turks, Turks who were a little misguided about their ethnicity and language, rather than an actual minority. This was, of course, ridiculous. Turkish and Kurdish don't even belong to the same language family. But in the censored military regime, such outlandish claims could be made with a straight face. Stop quote. A few years later, something happened that could be considered a routine incident. Turkish military jets flew near the Iraq border and bombed and killed 34 Kurdish smugglers. Smuggling was routine, the authorities knew about it, and at worst you'd arrest smugglers and give them a shakedown, not bomb them with military jets. Anyway, the Turkish military then spun the incident and all that was reported in the news was that a few terrorists had been killed at the border. Reporters and managers at mainstream media outlets were uneasy. They knew something was off, but they couldn't report it. Then one reporter, Serdar Akinan, working in a newsroom where his bosses had shut out the incident, took the initiative. He bought a plane ticket on his own dime, flew to the nearest airport, took a cab and went to the village which was the centre of the action. As he entered the village, he spotted what Tufekci describes as, quote, a snaking line of coffins coming down a small hill as families wailed all around. Stop quote. The coffins passed him and went on and on. The wailing went on and on. Akinan broke down. In another day and age, in the 1980s or the 1990s, this would have been the private grief of a surprised outsider. But this was 2011. Akinan took out his smartphone and snapped a picture of the snaking coffins. He put it on Instagram. He put it on Twitter. And soon, the whole world knew. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. My subject for today is radically networked societies. Once upon a time, there were constraints to how fast and how much information could get out. Constraints of both technology and the coercive state. But today, thanks to the internet and smartphones and social media, we are radically networked. 
One of the consequences of this is what we saw in the famous Arab Spring of almost a decade ago, with popular uprisings in country after country, enabled by technology, forming spontaneously from the bottom up instead of directed from the top. Reading Tufekci's book, Twitter and Tear Gas, I was struck by some of the parallels between those protests and the protests that have erupted in India over the last few weeks. My eyes almost popped out, in fact, when Tufekci wrote about how one common element to many of these protests was that a library would spring up in the middle of it. And I thought of Shaheen Bagh. Democracy, it struck me, must surely be deeper in a radically networked society. But there are also challenges. One challenge is that there is a flip side to this as well. And radical networking can also be used to spread misinformation, such as rumors about outsiders kidnapping children that have led to so many lynchings in India. Also, there is a question of whether the coercive power of the state, also enhanced by technology, is still too strong to counter. From a philosophical perspective also, questions arise about how the state should deal with the ill effects of such radical networking. There has always been a trade-off between liberty and security. Is this a false binary? If not, how do we traverse this new landscape? To discuss this, I've invited my friend Pranay Kutasane, one of the smartest people I know in India, who I absolutely love discussing ideas with. Pranay works at the Takshashila Institution in Bengaluru, and he has not just thought deeply about the subject of this episode, he has also taught it. But before we get to our discussion, let's take a quick commercial break. If you're listening to The Seen and the Unseen, it means you like listening to audio and you're thirsty for knowledge. That being the case, I'd urge you to check out Storytel, the sponsors of this episode. Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world. Their international collection is stellar, but so is a local collection. They have a fantastic range of Marathi and Hindi audiobooks. What's more, I do a weekly podcast there called The Book Club with Amit Verma, in which I talk about one book every week, giving context, giving you a taste of it and so on. Download that app and listen to my show and as long as Storytel sponsors this show within this commercial itself, I will recommend an audiobook that I liked on that platform every week. My recommendation for this week is At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. This has been described as a science fiction horror novella but its mad delights cannot be adequately explained in genre terms. Lovecraft writes an eldritch, overblown prose that is so very bad that it is very, very good. And there is a cult around his writing, of which I am a devoted member. At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft on Storytel. Download their app or visit Storytel.com. Remember that Storytel with a single L, Storytel.com. Pranay, welcome to The Scene and the Unseen. Thanks, Amit. Pranay, one of the, uh, you know, the things that I really like about you and why all our discussions is, uh, are so much fun and uh, why I even learn from your attitude is that I find that you never really take hard positions and speak with certainty about everything. You've always got this intellectual humility and this openness to actually listening to what the other person says. And like in an episode I did a few weeks back, Paramita Vora referred to a certain class of pandit as men with beards. And it strikes me that even though you have a beard, you're not a man with beard. You could say Schrodinger's beard. (laughs) So kind of tell me about your attraction to policy and the kind of studies that you do, the kind of fields that you work in and, uh, you know, how that has been shaped over the years. Yeah. So first of all, that happens because I really don't know much. So still trying to learn. Uh, That's the main reason. And uh, I think uh, the way I have looked at a lot of policy spaces, I try to call myself an aspirant 
wearing harfan mola so i want to learn a lot of things right so uh, the frame that i use is that there are lots of disciplines like you have economic reasoning you have psychology you have cognitive science etc and you can at least get a few frameworks from those and then apply them across domains for example there is lot of public finance work that can apply to geopolitics uh, so i truly believe uh, new knowledge generation happens at the intersection of disciplines not necessarily in the pigeonholed disciplines as they are right now and i am just trying to explore them and would it be pe- because people who are stuck into one particular discipline and who don't have that multidisciplinary interest uh think in particular rigid ways and one way of breaking out of that is by getting insights which might have popped up in other disciplines and that kind of informs you absolutely yeah uh, so let me just give an example right so we always talk about say foreign aid you know how has uh, us's aid to pakistan affected it or how has china giving money in the form of cpec going to affect pakistan right uh, now conventionally you will have geopolitical analysts looking at really uh, what did uh, did cpec lead to a new power uh, industry or did it lead to new transportation things like that right and what were the political relationships but uh, just look at it public finances there is a whole bunch of literature which talks about what happens when you give uh, grants to another government right uh, does that lead to actually increase in the supply of what you wanted uh, the product that you wanted to increase right or if you don't give a grant and instead you give a voucher you know you will start a scheme to actually do certain things say a centrally sponsored scheme kind of thing what is the impact of that uh, so th- these are already analyzed in another discipline so maybe you can apply some insights from that and get uh, a new knowledge generation happening and you mentioned economic thinking which is pro- probably what i do too much of perhaps uh, and and uh, when you were saying this i just thought back to when i was you know traveling through pakistan in 2006 i was covering the cricket tour there mm. but i also was writing for the wall street journal and doing other stories and blogging from there and someone told me at the time that it was in pakistan's interest to keep the war on terror going because pakistan had now become it was almost a failing state before 9/11 and uh, the it had now become completely reliant on foreign aid which was a lifeline and uh, my, my pakistani friend said to me that al qaeda should actually be called al faida mm-hmm. and i thought of it from the point of view of incentives and it whatever the geopolitical imperatives may be it is clearly obvious that just looking at the incentives they are going to keep terror going yeah yeah and things like trade offs and opportunity cost these are applicable across disciplines right these are so yeah economic reasoning is the study of human behavior exactly. and that's why it it applies to so many other things a man after my own heart come to my arms uh so i have listened to all the episodes <laughs> yeah you have been on some of the episodes and i have to tell my listeners please i will link some of those earlier episodes from the show notes but pranay is being extremely modest when he says that his openness comes from uh, uh not uh, uh knowing much he knows a lot about a lot of areas you you're considered in many circles of, like a foreign policy expert or an ir expert I, is that fair or is that uh, um, sort of pigeon holing you again uh, i am not an expert first okay. so i am a <laughs> foreign policy uh, uh, student and i am really interested in finding things out about that uh, so yeah and i do some things on public finance and some work on public policy that's also a lot of my interest i really like to 
understand why certain policies change, when that policy change happens, when it doesn't, things like that, right? Like just uh, for now, for example, fast tag implementation is going on in India. So I'm, it's a natural experiment for us to investigate, right? Why is the implementation so shitty as it is? And what are the steps that government is going to take? How is this going to work out? So that really thrills me. Let's see how it goes. And other, uh, you know, before we get to the subject at hand, uh, since you, one last question, since you sort of uh, started your career into the point where you uh, um, are now, uh, is is there any fundamental way in which your thinking has changed? Uh, yes. So I come from an engineering background, right? Like many of us here, it's just like a rite of passage. After 12th, you do engineering. So uh, until then, once I came here uh, in this field, I think economic reasoning was something that truly blew my mind, right? Because you always had this idea of trade-offs in the back of your mind, but you could never articulate it in a way that makes sense across a lot of disciplines and across a lot of questions which come to mind. So I think economic reasoning brought that uh, fundamental change in thinking. So now any question that comes up, you have a set of tools at least to start off with. And based on that, you can then uh, explore more ideas. In fact, you know, if I were to ask myself a similar question, one of the concepts that really blew my mind when I internalized and understood it mm-hmm. is something very relevant to the subject of this episode, which is spontaneous order, which of course is how there are beyond a certain level of complexity, you can no longer direct things from the top. You know, no one designs a language or gives dictates on how a word should be used. It evolves spontaneously. That's spontaneous order. Um, you know, markets work like that. Societies work like that. And we see a lot more of this action in radically networked societies. Now, before we sort of start talking about it, I want to kind of divide this episode into two broad themes. One is about radically networked societies or RNS, which is a short form uh, we can use to so- sort of understand what has changed and what is the nature of the change and what are the trade-offs involved and what are the difficulties it pose. And the second part to talk about something that you've written about at length also, about how the state should respond to these changes in society. Because society, of course, is, you know, now flat and radically networked, but society has remained very hierarchical and still stuck in old structures. So let's kind of start with definitions. What is a radically networked society? Yeah, so this term radically networked societies, uh, Nitin, my colleague, coined it, and we've been working together to explore this in greater detail. So radically networked society or radically networked community definitionally is a web of connected individuals possessing an identity which is either imagined or real and are motivated by a common immediate cause. Okay, so look at it as a triangle which has three elements to it. Uh, One is the scale. Uh, So the networked aspect is the scale. One is a sociological aspect, which is the identity. And one is a political aspect, which is a cause. So when these three things come together, what you have is a radically networked society. At this point, I would like to say that the word radical is not, we are not talking about the terrorism and radicalization, that area. Radical here just means fundamentally networked societies, right? So that is what we are uh, referring to. Now, why is it important, right? So, the significant change that has happened in the information age is that uh, our societies are now fundamentally networked, whereas our states are still optimized for the industrial age, right? So they are, like you said, right, 
top to down. They are structured in a way that information has to flow from the bottom to the up. All decision making is concentrated at the top. So the states are function like that. Like just think of a company hundred years ago, right, which is doing on a shop floor. So the state is somewhat similar in organization. So decision making happens at the top. Information flows are slow. Latency exists, etc. Now contrast that with how the society exists now with the internet. Uh, you have people who are radically networked with each other and the information flows are fundamentally different now, right? So uh, in the protests also, for example, that you see, we call this leaderless, right? But actually it means there are multiple leaders, right? So there are multiple leaders and the information flows are happening from one node to the other without necessarily being coordinated by one guy who is controlling this entire uh, function, right? So that's why societies are networked, information flows are different whereas the state which is still hierarchically structured the information flow is quite different so latency let's say you organize a radically networked protest today right and the state needs to respond now how will the state respond there will be a police uh, who will probably get in hear about this if the whatsapp message reaches you then they will go to the let's say the commissioner of bangalore and then after that it will go to the home uh, minister here then they'll decide and by that time the protest has already started right because the information flows in societies are very different so that is how we sort of conceptualize this and all these uh, protests that have been happening since 2011 have an element of uh, this digital to uh, network tools being used to actually create these protests and manage them so that's how we came to it and uh, what you and uh, Nitin uh, this is Nitin Pai of course who runs the Takshishla institution what you guys elaborated on in your joint paper which I'll link from the show notes are the three essential properties of radically networked societies where you talk about a sociological aspect, a political aspect and a networked aspect. And here I'll quickly clarify that in my introduction, when I spoke of radically networked society, my conception of it was society in large and is radically networked. And way you are sort of defining it and we'll continue speaking about it in these terms as we go deeper is more of these sort of communities that form, for example, these communities during times of protest, like we saw in the Arab Spring in Tunisia, Egypt and uh, so on. And like to some extent, we have seen in India over the last uh, few weeks. So, you know, can you elaborate on each of these sociological aspect, political aspect, network aspect? Yeah. So let's start with this. Let's d- discuss what are some examples of movements or uh, entities which are not radically networked society. So that sort of helps clarify the frame. So let's look at examples of communities which have scalability and an identity aspect, but are yet to find a cause. Okay, so for an example for that is fan clubs. Okay, so when you have these fan clubs which are there, so you have an imagined identity. I'm a Rajnikanth fan, or I am a Amitabh Bachchan fan. Uh, I've been told by Shahrukh Khan fans. So there you (laughs) go. Right. So you have a strong imagined identity which brings people from across the places together. Right. Something which motivates you to come together, and it might even be an online fan club, or it might just be very well networked offline as well. So you can have the scalability aspect, but there is no immediate cause to mobilize this particular fan club right so this is one type of entity which is not yet a radical in it unless right? amit verma has written a nasty review of rais which yes. becomes a, a temporary cause yeah that <laughs> yeah. might bring together people right uh, yeah. but Shah Rukh generally it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> let's take another example right example of community mobilizations which have cause 
and a scalability aspect, but a much weaker identity. Okay, an example for that is like you have these change.org petition drives that happen. So you have a scalability aspect because through internet you are connected to a lot of people. People say Bangalore, you want to fix a street, and there will be people from across the world who will be pitching in on this. And there is also the cost, which is the roads, etc. Right. So, but again, there is no identity aspect here. Very weak. So it is not a radical network society let's look at the third one examples of community mobilizations which have cause and which also have an identity but have not been able to scale their protests now an example of this is many localized protests which happen so i'm sure like shivasena organizes a band in uh, andheri okay for a particular thing that's happening there a local protest so that is an example where there might be a cause and there might be an identity element also involved but it is not scaling it so this is another example where it is not yet a radical in network societies now only when these three things come together that's when you have a very potent mix uh, where you can have large amount of mobilizations which can sustain over large periods of time and can challenge the state significantly as well so uh, an example of what is a radical network society right so for example i would say the ram mandir movement was an example of a radical network societies before uh the advent of the internet as well right so the, you had a strong identity and imagined identity the this the hindu identity right you had a cause you wanted to build a temple and it was networked as well because they were able to mobilize people across india towards this cause so it was a radical the grassroots workers were like physical routers yes <laughs> yeah and then you also have more recent examples right like the uh, patidar mobilization which happened in surat by hardik patel that also had a radically networked element so the immediate cause was regarding jobs and reservation the identity was this patidar identity and uh, the scale was through the internet lot of facebook groups and whatsapp groups were used to mobilize these protests so this is what uh, radical network societies are why are they important so why is this imagined identity part important right so uh, even though these radically network societies a few of them like we discussed existed in the past uh, the internet as a medium has uh, thoroughly changed that scalability aspect of it right uh, it has changed the speed of communication it has changed the depth of communication so that is making it easier to bring latent identities and causes to the fore or sometimes even creating new identities and new causes which was not as much possible before the internet it did exist but now it has reached a completely different level right and that's why you see lots of these protests where consumers are coming to oppose something uh, which didn't happen earlier you would have protests by workers but now they are protests by consumers so that is what is different now and so i'll briefly sum it up when you talk about the sociological aspect what you mean is that's a shared imagined identity uh, to use benedict anderson's phrase uh, when you talk about the political aspect you mean the cause Uh, and when you talk about the network aspect you mean the you know the speed and scalability which is today of course enabled uh, by technology and couple of interesting points you made one you by giving the example of the ram mandir you pointed out that rnss existed before the internet and the another classic example of that 
where you see the role of the internet played by something else is the people spring in 1848 like the arab spring of 2010 2011 was actually named after the people spring yeah. of mm-hmm. 1848 which had uh, you know the sociological aspect which had uh, you know those common identities which had a political cause and their scalability came from the popularity of newspapers and telegraphs and especially and most people don't think of it as a channel of communication but especially of railways because railways were what ferried newspapers and books and pamphlets across the country so think of it as like a meat space version of the internet who says such a thing mm-hmm. uh, shame on me mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing that also uh, struck me when you mentioned the partidar agitation was that a liberal listening to this may put a halo around rns because you know he can look at a lot of agitations which he identifies with which have happened because of this radical networking but it's a value agnostic term radically networked uh, society can also be a community which for example assembles to carry out pogroms at large scale and we'll talk about some of the sort of negative aspects of this after a while and i was also sort of struck by this phrase i came across while prepping for the episode which was ethan zuckerman's cute cat theory and you've heard this phrase no no so the cute cat theory is this that earlier when you are communicating via technology the most effective uh, mediums uh, the most effective ways to communicate are through social media which people at large are using anyway they're not using for this purpose so the thing is people might be using facebook to share pictures of cute cats therefore the cute cat theory but and and that therefore becomes the most effective way to build a revolution because a lot of people are there for cute cats and then you feed them your revolution so which is sort of quite uh, fascinating yeah you don't need to create a different medium as such for uh, creating a revolution right actually the reason is you want people at the margin to be supportive of these right, right? so people at the margin will be supportive of this if they can participate in it at lower costs to them right so if you are on facebook for a bunch of other things and you just see these things coming up the cost for me to engage with this really low as against you saying you uh, uh, install this revolution tm app and we will cause a revolution then people only the already converted will participate in it and the low cost also means that let's say some influencer tweets something which i really like and i retweet it my action of retweeting it sends it to all of my uh, followers you know so the scalability that you can reach with these tools of facebook like the twitter uh, retweet are uh, just kind of off the charts what are sort of like having looked at radically network societies and such movements come up over the uh, last few years and i'm referring to those specifically now enabled by the internet and social media what are the things what are the commonalities that uh, you'd say that they share yeah uh, so protests are one of the manifestations of radically network societies right like we discussed they could also be flash mobs they could be lynching mobs which have been the case in india but now let's look at protests in and what have what have been the commonalities across the last few years in that so when we talk about uh, protests the a few common things are first a large number of these protesters have been young across the world wherever these have taken place okay so maybe it has to do with these are the young people who are uh, at comfort with the scalable aspect of this rns they are native to that and hence they have been able to use it okay because technology is flexible i have a couple of figures to back this up mm-hmm. in 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 tunisia where the arab spring all started 
most of the young were one unemployed but the under 30 population in tunisia was 60% of the population of the country so you know uh, their demographic dividend if you want to call it that similarly in egypt over 54% of egypt's population as of last year was made up of the under 24 uh, demographic and in 2011 24 million egyptians were between the ages of 15 to 29 and uh, you know in the demographic security field apparently the the term they use for this is fighting age <laughs> fighting age yeah okay so that is one the second thing is it's not just that these are the young people these are young people who are connected to the internet right and in tunisia case also a large number of the penetration of the internet was significantly high as well right so what is different about internet like we discussed it allows people with really dispersed interests also to mobilize at lower costs and at higher scales Okay, that is significantly different and that's what uh, you see in these protests third thing is they are not necessarily the poorest people who are protesting which is again backed by theory earlier that it's the opportunity cost for a person who is at the poorest rung is too high to get engaged in any political activism of sort so it will be people who will be disaffected so unemployed people but still people who can afford a mobile people who can read things etc right so that is uh, another aspect and also largely you know as uh, protests go on and become prolonged there'll be a lot the you know students will be overrepresented because working people will for example the opportunity cost will be high they can't be there all the time and so on yeah that's a good point then another point which actually tyler cowen makes in one of his piece is that this is Uh, a lot of these recent protests are consumer protests rather than worker protests okay so conventionally we think of workers mobilizing quickly because they have a leadership structure they have a cause which they have something a policy change which affects them in a concentrated manner so it is not difficult for them to you know protest because they know the benefits of them will be uh, accrued accruing to all of them right but when you are a consumer the benefits of any policy change are actually quite dispersed right so it's quite easy for a government to do client politics in uh, so there's a wilson's matrix in public policy which says that if the benefits for a policy change are concentrated whereas the costs of that policy change are dispersed that kind of politics is easy to do and that's what many of the governments do right so uh, let's say you raise tax and you float air india okay classic case of client politics but it with the internet it is now possible uh, for consumers who are affected in a dispersed manner to still come together at lower costs and at higher scales okay so that's why you see lot of the protests in the recent year i'll just give a few example are consumer protests right so for example in chile uh, metro prices hike led to a huge protest a few months back in ecuador the protesters have been demanding restoration of fuel subsidies okay petroleum prices again have a uh, role to play in the haitian uh, uh, protest there uh, in lebanon there has been a tax tax levied on whatsapp and that led to protest yeah. uh, even in uganda something similar again in sudan there has been food and fuel subsidies so they uh, took away a bit of subsidies and that led to consumers being able to mobilize on a large scale okay so what you see is consumers are able to sort of mobilize to an extent even you could say like say india against corruption for example 
example would also be would you call that a consumer's protest because they're consumers of government services Absolutely, and they're protesting yeah. corruption and corruption as such is a dispersed cost to a lot of people right uh, yeah. so but yet people were able to mobilize on one identity that we are all the uh, disaffected people because of this evil called corruption so it created that new imagined identity right uh, and the cause e- immediately was instances which kept coming up during that time frame about government corruption 2g and all those things right and that led people to coalesce around it so one of the this is the question that i have here and which is sort of a mystery to me is that okay so you know whenever i read public choice theory i'm always kind of uh, or applied to something i'm filled with a little bit of despair because you know everything seems so intractable how do we get positive change happening an example of that is what you just spoke of that in so many things the benefits are concentrated the costs are dispersed so for example if 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 the government you know puts a tariff on something from outside you know all common consumers might be paying 10 paisa or 20 paisa more for the product but they don't even know that and the costs are so dispersed and similarly the small retailers who benefit from that protectionism can form a lobby and uh, give funds to the government or the example you gave of air india that all of us are actually paying for it every single day to keep an unprofitable airline running but we don't care because the costs are dispersed the cost to me for air india could be something like 10 rupees or 20 rupees i don't even know what it is but is dispersed and is invisible so i don't care so and typically this then becomes a reason for skeptics like me to then bemoan the possibility of change because we will be like that how do you motivate people for whom the costs are dispersed and often invisible to actually come together and um, protest and the second point you pointed out also you know which f- from public choice is the free rider effect which is that let us say that uh, there is something that i want to protest for but i don't need to protest for it for it to happen i can just let other people protest and i can free ride and benefit without doing anything and this is a common cause for why many protests uh, don't take off at all now what i am finding to my immense confusion and feel free to give me examples from elsewhere that either counter this or demonstrate this but what i am finding in india is for example the anti caa effect the anti caa protests a lot of the people who are protesting aren't directly affected by it and won't even be you do find a lot of upper caste hindus even joining the protests while they will really not be affected by this uh, government not this specific policy everyone's affected by the disaster that is our great economy so what motivates so many people and this is not just about retweeting something where you're right the costs are very low so you can show your protest by retweeting or doing on facebook but you've had spontaneous demonstrations throughout the country where people are going out on the streets to look at places like shaheen bagh where people are spending days and nights and days and nights in 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 this horrible uh, winter and uh, amid this pollution to protest so what's going on here i don't i don't understand yeah uh, i've thought about this uh, and sort of the answer that i can look to if i apply this rns frame is that the government has been responsible for creating this imagined identity of people and it that imagined identity of people has only grown because of the subs- actions that government has repeatedly taken right and those so the caa then there was talk about the nrc now they are saying that nrc doesn't exist but and even before that there have been instances of lynching uh, etc and the government's response was quite lackadaisical right so there have been over the last 4 5 years many such actions because of which this 
imagined identity of people who think who reject that idea has sort of grown over time and that has led to a significant critical mass of people being uh, uh, sympathetic to what people who will be affected by this right and then this ca just becomes a cause the second leg of this triangle and that cause eventually mobilizes people that's how i have thought i'm sure there must be better answers to it so what you're saying is that it's cascade of effects which are then strengthening these dissenting identities so to say against uh, these guys and the caa comes right at the end of it i mean the, the, another thing that struck me and that is actually heartening is that there isn't any one identity at play when you look at the anti caa protests you do have muslim groups who are out there saying allahu akbar you also have people who are saying no that's not secular uh, let's not protest that way and my personal stand is let a thousand flowers flourish let everybody protest in whatever way they see fit no one should dictate to others but there is also a diversity of identity in all, all this and of course they are united by their antipathy towards a very restrictive idea of india that is now coming up which is the hindu rashtra idea but um, i mean i'm trying to sort of process uh, this interplay of identity actually for an imagined community to form you need two aspects okay one you need commonality of certain things right so you need generally it is language or religion or common historical experience or whatever and the second is for you to be able to differentiate against the other Right. Okay, so here you have the second element. You are dif- clearly differentiating what we are not. Okay, and the second element, I think, the idea of secular India constitution has become that element which says what we are together, what we share. That's why this preamble. I mean, who would have thought? preamble would be uh, you know reiterated and repeated on the streets of india i mean that's uh, so there is that element you know it's not it's not on probably on religious language grounds but it is still on a shared experience of probably 70 years of india and we have a conception of what india is like and what Uh, joins us as indians i think that is one element and don't forget the third uh, node of this the scalability aspect of it right the internet uh, being able to communicate these ideas across india has been a significant boost as well to the protest right so these three things are coming together here as well and i i i guess every picture of a protest somewhere uh, makes a sympathetic person more likely to go out and protest himself thereby acting against the free rider effect and maybe there is something expressive to that also that by going out to protest you're not even if you are hopeless about change actually happening you are asserting your identity and your values yeah actually uh, i was just observing this narrative shift on, on twitter right first few days was like why are people protesting uh, after a few days it was why aren't you protesting Uh-huh. like okay. yeah so i mean what's wrong with you <laughs> yeah, so if you see the it has shifted if you are a right thinking person and you believe in the idea of india why weren't you protesting right so that narrative shifted uh, and that is actually a manifestation of what you said right it has now lot of people have thought uh, and the internet has been able to spread this idea uh, very effectively and that's why it is now the norm has shifted that you should be there and you should oppose this i mean there are just two more aspects to what join some of these protests together so for example one thing is that these protests have been across the political spectrum 
in the world as well, right? So it's not just that only left-leaning groups or right-leaning groups have been involved in this. Uh, the th last one which I found quite fascinating was that migration has been an issue which has caught on for a lot of RNSs, either in support of migration or in opposition to the migration, both, uh, right? Maybe this is because uh, in migration is an issue where identity and cause quickly overlap with each other, right? Because you already have an existing nation, national identity. So whenever there are, say, in France, for example, for the Yellow West protests, which are still going on, one of the issues in the beginning was that there is too much migration, right? And the idea was people then quickly see we are French, we are different, why are these people coming here? So that there is an inherent identity aspect which already exists and the immediate cause becomes a flow of people coming in or a migration flow. So those two potent things already exist and then you add the scalability aspect to it and you have protests which emerge. On the other side, uh, you also have the current protests which are going on in India are actually sort of pro. Uh, they are saying that why are you dividing people who are coming into India as well, right? So, but this migration aspect sort of is uh, leads to these uh, RNSs quite quickly. And it's interesting that when we talk about RNSs, when we talk about the three things you need, identity, cause and scalability, scalability has now become something you can basically take for granted because the internet is there and you can achieve scalability. So mm. it's only you need a, an intersection of the other two for it to happen. Yeah. And, you know, if we may, like when I was reading... Uh, Tufnekchi's book, uh, Twitter and Tergas, which uh, I'll link from the show notes and recommend to everyone. And one, I noticed a lot of commonalities between what is happening in India now and earlier radically network movements like this. But what also struck me was that many of those commonalities, many of those features that they have in common actually led to those movements not being able to achieve what they set out to achieve. For example, there is the leaderless aspect of it. Now, it's a good thing. I think it's a very good thing that you don't have uh, people trying to co-opt leadership or, uh, you know, it's all spontaneous. It's it's whatever. But that also then leads to uh, what Tufnekchi calls tactical freeze mm -hmm. in the sense that then you cannot change the movement, cannot change uh, tactics midway. There is always confusion about that. You cannot really negotiate with the government. Who is negotiating on your behalf? How do you know that person hasn't been co-opted? And there are, you know, when there is a general commitment to a set of values, it is okay if the specific aims are diffused and dispersed. But when you are actually getting to a position of telling the government, okay, give us A, B, C, this is what we want, you know, that specificity doesn't uh, come around. And on a day-to-day -day basis, there is what is called an adhocracy. Things happen in an ad hoc kind of way. And uh, other movements have been let down by this. Like if you look at what happened in Egypt, fine, great, they got rid of uh, Mubarak. But uh, three years later, you know, you had... Uh, a military dictatorship again and, uh, you, you know, a similar uh, kind of mess. They didn't really achieve their ultimate aims. Maybe they achieved one small proximate aim, but they didn't achieve their ultimate aims. So looking at that, what can, uh, you know, what lessons can these protests draw from such protests of the past, which, which have so much in common with it beyond libraries? So what we see from the uh, previous movements, the lessons that we learn are, yeah, that... Uh, 
what happens is generally these protests uh, once they take place the remember the state is still going to react to this right so once the state reacts it depends on how the protest will then shape up in reaction to what the state does so for example take the hong kong case okay so hong kong uh, there has been this radically network protest going on there for many months now and the ultimate cause for that was this uh, anti extradition uh, uh, the, the extradition bill which probably said that uh, whoever is uh, found guilty of uh, some crimes in hong kong they'll be tried in china right so now this became an immediate cause the identity was this hong kong versus the china divide already uh, so this was the main demand okay anti lab but once the state actually accepted that this anti lab will not go ahead the demands then proliferated now there are many more demands and some one or two of those demands will never be accepted by the chinese state because they are like uh, going right against what the party state wants so what if you have these protests which morph into multiple demands and you are not able to control them then they won't be successful right uh, in at least achieving them the second thing is uh, often the states are able to divide these communities are at a later point of time so classic right you if you can divide and rule kind of uh, and these communities often uh, divide themselves at uh, you know with their quest for ideological purity and their silly infighting exactly yeah, yeah i mean do uh, you want to be holier than thou and then you, yeah. you actually end up reducing that imagined identity you had constructed in the first place and you split into multiple rncs all of them having their own uh, identity aspect and cause aspect so once you split that then again you will not be able to achieve what you want so uh, those are two three things uh, that uh, these protests can learn probably and also you know just uh, sort of taking that uh, diffusion of aim forward the the question that comes up for example with these anti caa protests um, you know you you could ask what is the final aim and and what all the protesters are fighting is not just that specific uh, citizenship amendment act but also that way of thinking that uh, that narrow view of what uh, india means and so on and so forth now the question there is what is the aim and when do you know that you won because it's very easy for example the government won't do it but uh, we are recording on jan 23rd but if the government were to just come forward and say okay we won't do the ca mm. fine you know that doesn't end it because they'll still do the npr and you know the overall program will continue even if one or two elements round when do you call the protests off uh, when do you what is the reason for calling the protests off if the protest is not being able to achieve its proximate aim is that reason enough to call it off or should you continue for larger reasons like all of gandhi satyagrahas pretty much failed in their proximate aims but they achieved something much larger in terms of mobilizing the people and mobilizing the masses yeah absolutely like to use tufekchi's framework itself right uh, she divides that uh, generally social movements have sort of three capacities right narrative capacity that is the aim of changing the narrative and the stories that people think in terms of second is disruptive capacities basically if you are movements able to stop business as usual and the third one is electoral or institutional capacity whether you are able to bring about a change in the head of the state or are you able to actually change the uh, electoral structure itself right so now uh, if you look at social movements aided and abetted by digital uh, media 
uh, what the capacity which is enhanced most is the narrative capacity right so you are able to significantly change narratives very quickly you can put out a new story there uh, and it will be consumed by a large amount of people but the digital products are not so strong when it comes to the other two ideas right so not all digital products have been able to even do the disruptive aspect uh, and to get the third one electoral change that's even tougher no and again it strikes me and this is again going back to public choices that you know at one point in time when india against corruption the movement happened which actually didn't achieve any objectives really but um, at that point they decided to do something about the electoral uh, uh, objective and the aam aadmi party was formed and there was much dissent within the movement about that but fine they were formed but the moment that party was formed it becomes prey to the incentives of regular politics where all that matters is gaining power somehow and principles cease to matter so things that they would have stood up for in the past for example they made uh, vishal dadlani apologize uh, uh, to that the, the jain sadhu who felt offended uh, for example they actually supported the abolition of uh, 370 in kashmir a few months ago and they haven't at all spoken out against the caa and how it threatens the idea of india and i don't blame them for this at one level because i understand that they have reconfigured themselves as a party of uh, good governance and they are saying we are doing education we are doing schools and they are saying it's important for us to win the election and get the bjp out of there so we will not uh, stand up for all of these things but then what happens therefore is that even if a movement even if a sliver of the movement is to try and gain electoral capacity they are still subject to the incentives of politics which is always to get power to get votes and to use power to make money so that people donate to you and the whole process gets corrupted very fast as in my opinion has happened with amani party uh, whatever else one may feel about them how does one get past this i mean you know uh, are all movements then destined to either be corrupt in whatever electoral form they take to be corrupted and to be diluted or are they destined to just uh, sort of fade away yeah first of all i think we need to decide what we mean to call a protest successful right true, true. Uh, i would say the fact that uh, whatever aam aadmi party uh, the fact that despite all the incentives which are heavily loaded against any new party the fact that the a new formation has come about because of iac is itself you can say it is a success yeah it's politically successful and you can even say that it is successful in terms of governance because they've provided better governance than the alternative would have yeah. but uh, the, the construction of... of the alternative itself is a success i forget about the good governance that they uh-huh. have done even if they weren't able to the fact that a new entity came up and it was able to uh, at least win is a change from but uh, it's almost it's almost a tangential success the main aim of the movement which was let's do something about corruption which first of all they were articulating wrongly because you cannot solve corruption by increasing instead of reducing government the discretion of the state and the power given to it but that hasn't happened you know so and not come closer to happening either yeah that that is true but uh, what i'm saying is that there is so we we need to then say what was the aim of these protests and the problem there is that these aims will always be so dispersed so diffused and as they go on uh, more things will be added to them and that's why we have this and problem. i guess syriza in greek was an example of a movement which became a successful political uh, thing right yeah syriza there have been uh, other examples as well and in tunisia also you were able to completely change the government etc right so tunisia is like one 
odd success element but in many other uh, countries you actually you reverted back to the normal there was regression to the mean so that uh, has happened but uh, overall it is not a very positive story to say like i can't say uh, that this is the way digital protests have significantly changed and the research on that also shows that they significantly change narrative capacity but disruptive and electoral capacities are much much difficult to change because remember you are up against the state and the state has a very coercive uh, power with it and when it comes down uh, heavy handed on the protesters it becomes very difficult for them to bring the change in the other two dimensions no and if i might speculate i've uh, you know in the last 5 minutes i've actually kind of changed my mind a little bit on that listening to you mm. because it strikes me that we need to figure out how do we define success and i would say that even if the caa the citizen the amendment act itself remains on the bill and the government does whatever it does and they proceed according to plan and we haven't been able to disrupt them regardless of that one way in which the movement has been a big success is in changing the culture so many people now know the preamble uh, at least by heart the, uh, though i wish it was the ambedkar version and not the indira gandhi version with the word socialism part of it but regardless so many people have a greater awareness of constitutional values and the fact that it's supposed to safeguard individual liberties and act as a check on the state and so many more people are now willing to come out on the streets for that augurs well for the future what do you say absolutely yeah. so the narrative has shifted right and we are conceptualizing what it means to be an indian and what is not indian what is un indian in a sense right and so these are important distinctions which are being made through digital media and elsewhere so that is a success right yeah that is a success you know we'll take a quick commercial break now and after we come back from the break let's now talk about the philosophical and policy questions that this brings up about the interplay between the state and radically networked societies and uh, Uh, you know what the role of the state should be because not all radically networked societies are necessarily for the good like me are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls well worry no more head on over to indiancolors.com indian colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in india and adapts them into products of everyday use these include wearable art like stoles and dresses for women and evening shirts for men home decor like wall plates cushion covers and table linen and accessories like tote bags and pencil pouches this allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do their artists include luminaries like dhruvi acharya jaydeep mehrotra madhuri kathe samir mondal brinda miller tanmay samanta tm aziz and manisha gera baswani they accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend head on over to indiancolors.com that's colors with an o u and if you want a 15% discount apply the code unseen u n s e e n that's unseen for 15% off at indiancolors.com Welcome back to the scene in the unseen I'm chatting with Pranay Kotasane about radically networked societies uh, and one of the things I forgot to uh, mention in the first half of the show before the break was I wanted to ask Pranay specifically about uh, the Hong Kong protests because he's actually written and thought about it a fair bit go ahead Yeah so 
Hong Kong is actually an RNS which is still going on, okay, as even as we speak, and it's sustained over many, many months. So it's an interesting case study. I just wanted to bring out a few elements of how digital media has a role to play in those protests, okay? So the overall uh, phrase that I use for this is the Hong Kong movement has been about moving your information trail offline while moving your decision making and narrative online. Okay, so that is how I uh, put it together. So what does it mean? Okay, so moving your information trail offline. Now remember, everyone knows the surveillance power and the authority of the Chinese state that they uh, use, right? So that's why uh, the Hong Kong protesters have been trying to move their information trail offline. So they use a lot of cash. They don't. So they are actually intentionally moving off the internet on for some purposes right so using cash not using atms because then you will be able to track people uh, they are turning off uh, uh, facetime id or touch id on their phones because they again feel that people might uh, use it in many times they have been using airdrop and bluetooth file sharing uh, in protest venues instead of the internet because again they fear that they can be tracked so that is interesting the second part of it was to move decision-making actually online. So uh, just look at this. There was this report in BBC that some of the groups on Telegram, etc. have around 70,000 active subscribers. Okay. And that represents 1% of Hong Kong's entire population. Wow. It's quite significant, right? And they also have specific groups for specific purposes. So there are groups for taking decisions. So they did like an online referendum of sorts, right? So whether we should continue protest the next day or not, that was voted on some of these groups with large memberships, right? Uh, also, uh, there were other groups which were more purpose-oriented. So there were groups for medics, groups for supplying food when these protests were happening. So, you know, the, you see entire decision making and the organization of this protest also moving online okay and uh, the tools used were telegram signal which they thought was less under control of uh, the chinese state so this is very fascinating right so digital media enabling the construction and the continuance of a protest is seen in hong kong quite clearly and and this is really interesting because I'm specifically interested by Hong Kong as, uh, you, you know, because the, the technology and the ways of communication there are evolving so quickly that in some cases to get away from the Chinese government, they have to do what one could term radical denetworking yeah. and just kind of uh, get off the internet. And I, it also reminds me of a time where, you know, it isn't as if, you know, a technology may be built to share cute cat pictures, but within that, uh, users themselves build features which can be used for radical networking. For example, the hashtag, right? The hashtag is really something that users innovated with first and, and then they became a thing and now you can identify trends by it uh, and so on and so forth. And and uh, this kind of a bit of that happening in uh, Hong Kong. And, and do you think India will also sort of uh, over here as well, will go in some of those directions as the imperatives to keep protests going uh, get stronger. Yeah, so one uh, interesting thing about the protests that are uh, that have happened over the last years are they have been prolonged in many of the countries. Some protests have been going on for more than a year as well. So it might play out that way, but that depends on the other aspect that we are going to talk about, about how the state will react. Just one point here about the Hong Kong protests to talk about the weak points of this. You know, one thing, uh, again, this BBC report, which excellently captured all this 
said that uh, these groups which were used to do a referenda type of decision making so a lot of people said that whenever there is a black and white decision to be made these group really work well but when there is a nuanced position to take then these groups don't work as well as they would you would want them to right so that is something which we'll experience in other protests also through these tools exactly so let's let's kind of talk about the state but before we bring the state in let's also you know we've, we've been talking about all of these protests and many of these are liberal protests which you and i are sympathetic towards but let's also uh, acknowledge that one radical network societies can be value neutral you can uh, you know use the scalability of the internet to actually organize pogroms or genocides or has in fact happened lynchings and so on and uh, uh, you know before mohammed akhlaq was killed for example there were photos on whatsapp which had these narratives about you know perpetrity showing pictures of meat in his fridge and all of that nonsense and uh, we've had a problem in india which i discussed at length with uh, pratik sinha last year when i did an episode on fake news with him about this mysterious sort of these rumors which keep propagating across whatsapp with details change from locality to locality about how outsiders are coming in and kidnapping kids which led to a lot of uh, alarmist lynchings that you saw an outsider in a strange car and you assumed that he must be one of those kid kidnappers and uh, leave aside the motive behind such rumors being spread that's irrelevant but i think it's clear that in cases like that the state needs to sort of uh, step in and uh, do something and this is probably a good time to sort of examine the role of the state and its duty vis-a-vis -vis citizens as well which is something you discussed in your paper with Nitin yeah so let's look at this so fundamentally we are seeing a clash between hierarchically structured states and their radically networked societies right so this is a fundamental clash the problem as we discussed is information flows in these network communities will always be faster than the decision making cycle and information flows in the state where it has to go from bottom to up decision gets made gets filtered to bottom right that's going to take a lot of time so and I, th I think the way you guys put it was that states are relics of the industrial age and uh, are uh, radically networked societies are products of the information age. exactly so there's a fundamental mismatch right so states realize that now what will be the state's reaction when they realize that you know things are happening too fast for us it's getting out of hand what states do what they do best that is excessive use of force is one response that we see across these protests right whether in chile or in uh, uh, in lebanon and even in india now right so you see the excessive use of force for this mismatch so uh, the state will use uh, law and order machinery to attack the protesters and say that that is the only way we were left to clamp down these protests okay so that is one sort of response that comes up the second kind of uh, response is let's take the other extreme what is a more enlightened type of response that you would want the state to have uh, one way would be for the uh, government to have better emergency communication systems to at least refute misinformation which might happen right so for example i have an example of this so a few years back there was uh, a bomb at church street you know which uh, went off and the rumors started spreading on that also very quickly about first it was bomb on church street then the next tweets came started coming that bomb near a church and then third there were also tweets a bomb in a church right? i mean 
completely untrue but this misinformation was trying to take it in a certain direction probably make it a communal thing of sort right but it was quickly clamped down because you had a very credible presence of the bangalore police online right? not just bangalore police but the commissioner of police had a very visible presence Uh, and a reputation on that platform that he'd built over time so he was quickly uh, able to come into the picture and say hey that's not wrong it has happened at such and such place we are looking at the incident and trying to take uh, note of it right so that actually ended some of these speculations and uh, which might have led to you know more nastier things from happening so if the governments are also embedded in these uh, networks they understand it better and they have emergency communication systems in place on how to tackle these we might have a more liberal response at least to one aspect of it which is misinformation okay so that's the second way to deal with it okay third part of it is Uh, increased surveillance is what many states are moving towards so they are saying that the only way to do this is we need to have key control over the encryption keys that whatsapp uses or others uh, other platforms use in order to get control of this again quite illiberal response but this is what the states are looking at right the fourth one is where governments are saying we will put constraints even before this type of information is shared and that is what you have this 66a of the it act kind of response right where the government is saying if you share any information which is broadly defined as offensive or of menacing character we will have some uh, uh, penalties etc you might uh, be put in jail and all that right so this is another kind of illiberal response which exists so now what you see overall is the state realizes or sees uh, perceives this as a fundamental threat to them and they are being responding with Uh, largely illiberal responses which exists as either uh, preconditions on what can be shared or you have uh, uh, increased surveillance or you have increased use of force all three quite negative and on the other hand you have a more liberal response of having better emergency communication systems and largely states are still opting for the illiberal responses across the world and we are moving towards that even in india the narrative is now the fact that we see whatsapp enabling this is a very easy excuse for the state to actually say yeah the problem is not us the problem is actually whatsapp so give us the encryption keys we will be able to regulate this better no and also states have a monopoly on violence which they are used to so the instinctive response is to uh, react with a uh, uh, sort of violence and, and and like you i feel the the only one of these four responses which you laid out which i completely agree with and is the right response is that the government itself establish a credible presence across networks so it can stop misinformation from um, spreading there's a larger question here and and the larger debate here which you've written about for years as well is the tussle between say uh, liberty and security and to sort of give a little bit of very quick context for the listeners on why this is an age old uh, tussle or at least a tussle since uh, enlightenment value shaped the state is that the whole purpose of the state as liberals like uh, me and pranay would view it is to defend our individual rights but there is a trade off here 
that if we want our freedoms to be safeguarded by the state, we have to give away some rights to enable the state to do this. So we give the state the right to have a monopoly on violence. And of course, the existence of the state is based on our taxes. So, you know, we accept that there will be some coercion and therefore some infringement on our rights, on our liberties for the state to exist. So we give away a little bit of our liberty for uh, the, the amount of security that we want. And uh, this equation is different across the world. Like you've pointed out in your paper in the US, they might give away 10% of liberty for whatever. And in other places, you give away far more liberty, like in North Korea, for example. And this is a tussle that also comes up in the context of radically networked societies, because many of these measures that you spoke about, like the surveillance uh, uh, state, though there is no state capacity to actually surveil everyone, but like the surveillance state or... Um, like just getting into a protest and beating up uh, protesters and so on, um, uh, you know, go towards the side of infringing liberties too much for uh, protecting and imagined security. So how has thinking on this evolved in this context? Uh, yeah, so I think there are some positive things to it. So uh, this is a liberty security trade-off that we spoke about, right? Uh, what percentage of rights that you give to the state in order to experience security and that trade-off varies across different nation states. Uh, now, what you would see in the past is when this RNS emerged first, the immediate response was uh, taking the argument of in favor of security just prevents uh, say liberty in all sorts so the classic response was stop the internet and india is the internet shutdown capital right so that is one more response that that they have used which doesn't work as you pointed out yeah it doesn't work because uh, these networks are very resilient so even after you break down the internet there will be other ways that people if once that identity and cause has been established people will find other means to it right like in the in hong kong's case people use bluetooth file sharing or airdrop to share documents uh, in other places people can use uh, satellite phones or other ways to basically keep the network going on okay so that was what the state started with that response of shutting down the internet but now states realize at least some of them that maybe that is not the way to go forward and that's why they are exploring other means either in terms of let's say surveillance which is problematic for us but the states are exploring that and the emergency communication system uh, as well so these are what states are realizing but it again you know varies across states so in india i think we would still say we are in the midst of this policy debate where all these options are currently open Right. Internet is still being closed down in many places. Even as we speak in Kashmir, it is still down and the state is also exploring this NAT grid that has been there for a long time that we should have a national grid. There have been talks about your WhatsApp uh, login should be linked to your Aadhaar kind <laughs> of things as well. Right. So all this, we are in the midst of that policy debate and uh, it will be interesting to see where it actually takes us. No, and uh, Also, my question to you is, Around one, what axis does one think about this in terms of instrumentality or morality? For example, uh, you know, Sunil Abraham uh, pointed out that uh, there's a false dichotomy between privacy and security. And I'll, I'll quote him where he says, uh, quote, an optimization approach to resolving the false dichotomy between privacy and security will not allow for a total surveillance regime as pursued by the U.S. administration. Stop quote. And his point is that there is like a hockey stick curve that there is a point at which is optimal where you take away some liberties 
but you provide a certain amount of security and that's where you should stop the analogy he uses is like salt in cooking that uh, you know food without salt is tasteless but beyond the point if you put too much salt it is also tasteless so you have to get the amount right and this is an approach which which would look at it in instrumental terms that we are trying to provide this much security and therefore we take away this many liberties and it becomes almost an engineering problem as it were but the other approach would be to also take into account uh, the moral aspect of it and say that no i don't care what the instrumentalities are beyond the point you cannot take away my liberties yeah i think uh, i think both of us fall on the other side of the moral argument right you would want the state to have as little a role in restricting liberties as it already restricts our liberties in many many Way areas too much, yeah. yeah so you don't want another additional tool in the hands of the state so we are wary of that and uh, that's why there are uh, other responses right but the thing is you need to have state capacity to be able to execute any of those right let's say you want excellent emergency communication systems or ways for states let's say if there is uh, actually uh, a real case of a riot happening because of these information system it is reported can states probably consider uh, in a very localized way probably slowing down the scale of the spreading of this information either through uh, appearance of credible information on whatsapp or even say let's say considering slowing down the internet in a very localized area Uh, again it is there is a problem of illiberal thing that we are approaching but as a moral point you don't want definitely internet shutdowns are not the way to go right it is a severe restriction of liberty of a large number of people in the name of security and because of a few rioters you are going to uh, affect a lot of other people as well or many of these responses actually which we talked about are uh, violate that moral stand that we come from right uh, and uh, yeah yeah and and uh, i mean i'm just thinking of the counter arguments for example i'm against torture mm. but one counter thought experiment that is often made up uh, which is often uh, presented to me by people arguing the other side mm. is that uh, what if there's a nuclear bomb in the middle of bombay and you know it's about to go off and one person has a code and you know he has a code but he's not giving it away should you torture him and that you know it's again instrumentality versus morality but then it seems a no brainer that yeah you have to save the lives of so many people so what do you mm. do and a similar argument could be uh the government has made similar arguments it's not a thought experiment in the case of kashmir by saying that we had to shut down the internet because terrorists will communicate with each other and uh, uh, the, 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 this of course is a, a, a rubbish argument but this is a sort of argument which people are making where the state also can say that listen i accept that the only job of the state I'll I'll concede your libertarian point that the only job of the state is to safeguard you and safeguard uh, your rights but I need to do this for that. Mm. How do such arguments play out? How have they played out in India in the policy space? Yeah, uh, in in the Indian case I think we already have there are no not many qualms about the state acquiring more power unfortunately so the state has been able to uh, clamp down on uh, freedoms more easily and it's right? normalized most of india doesn't give a shit that kashmir hasn't had internet for almost 6 months yeah so that's what the indian case has been unfortunately and that liberty argument which we are making is not the one which is uh, very popular currently right so yeah that's where we are So you know before we go I'm you know just thinking back for a moment beyond radically uh, network societies into radical networking per se like just as a lot of 
these liberal movements have been enabled by technology. I mean, I often say that uh, even as states grow stronger and stronger, the best uh, libertarian hope is that technology will empower individuals, which also seems to be happening. But it's equally true if you look at it another way that a lot of these right-wing populist movements that have come up have also been enabled by technology uh, in the sense, and this is something I've written about and we've spoken about in the past on how what social media perhaps did was that it created preference cascades in the sense that, and these are the words of Timur Quran, he talks about how people typically carry out preference falsification, that they don't express what they really feel about something because they're not sure if there are others like them. For example, um, Soviet dissidents under the Soviet Union who did not know that if they felt anger at the regime, they would not say it because they didn't know there were others like them. But then a moment comes when you realize that everybody shares uh, there are enough people and you have what is called a preference cascade. And Glenn Reynolds, Aka uh, Instapandit, the old school blogger, once wrote a piece about how Trump's rise, according to him, was enabled by preference cascades because suddenly a lot of people realized that the thoughts that uh, they were otherwise wary of expressing because it didn't seem politically correct were actually shared by a lot of people. And this coming together of silent majorities, uh, you know, enabled Trump to come to power. And in a similar sense, it could be argued that the rise of Modi to some extent was enabled by this, where a lot of people, you know, in some cases, um, perhaps um, where a lot of people suddenly realize that everybody shares whatever it is that draws them to uh, Modi's vision of India, maybe the desire for a Hindu Rashtra or a hatred of Muslims or bigotry or sexism or whatever. And I'm mm. sure there are positive things also. I don't want to indicate that everybody who voted or votes for Modi is necessarily uh, falls into one of these categories. Uh, though at the moment, I can't imagine too many positive categories of voting for him. Uh, and all of this has also been enabled by social media. So there are these countervailing things, processes sort of happening within uh, society. Mm. And at the same time, the coercive power of the state has also been enabled by technology. Like I retweeted something uh, someone pointed out a few days ago about... Uh, uh, how a lot of people who were near a protest somewhere in Kerala, I think, were got notice, got Shoko's notices from the government that what were you doing there? Mm. And how did the government know they were there? Because their cell phone the signals were picked up by the cell phone tower, mm. something of that sort. And the government, of course, has like incredibly scary surveillance mm. uh, technologies that they might even be listening to this podcast at the time of recording and not at the time of release. Hello, bureaucrat, if you're listening. Um, so... Looking ahead into the future where technology is both a cause for hope and despair, what is sort of a worst case scenario 10 years down the line and a best case scenario 10 years down the line? Right. So, uh, the best case scenario, I would say, would be where these uh, imagined communities which are there might be they are able to create new communities, new imagined identities which didn't exist earlier uh, on the lines which sort of... Uh, are more humane towards each other, which see each other as an individual rather than as a part of a specific uh, background, right? So uh, their caste, color, religion, but just seeing it as we are all uh, human. So just because of that, we need to be more sympathetic to each other. If that happens and we are able to form new imagined uh, identities on those lines, maybe the world will move towards it. It's a very philosophical thing, but I don't, uh, I, I don't have a concrete uh, answer to say. The second one on that would be the negative part would be, yeah, these uh, identities actually reaffirm our existing biases, and there are new RNSs which happened on already existing caste class lines. 
so that again leads to a lot of problem look at the cause angle you know and as we discuss about how consumer protests are being take place a negative scenario also is maybe now increasing prices of anything or decreasing subsidies of anything will become difficult because there might be radically network mobilizations in opposition to these in fact tiktok uh, for a while had like 356 million views for some hashtag which had onions in it mm. which and there were thousands of videos protesting the price rise of uh, onions which was radically networked entertainment but yeah. not exactly uh, a movement yeah and so that's a problem right so because you already have these strong endowment effects especially in india on everything right we have get so much tax benefits so we are uh, that endowment effect is there and if the government wants to end these imagine there is a radically networked mobilization uh, which takes this as an immediate cause the identity aspect might be built in over years but it will become even more difficult for uh, these uh, subsidies to be taken out as well so that's a sort of a negative scenario and i guess there might be an element of populism as well for example one legitimate cause which everyone should protest is a rising unemployment in india and the jobs crisis but one unproductive way of protesting it is when uh, groups like the partidars for example come together and just ask for more government reservations for themselves which does nothing to solve the structural reasons for the problem but uh, you know the structural reasons of the problem are so sort of abstract and counterintuitive that they're not going to get uh, you're not going to mobilize masses around those things Mm. so you have the right cause but a movement that demands perhaps the wrong action or a action which doesn't really uh, solve the problem and uh, you you can have more localized rnss around these uh, one more uh, we can look at a uh, sort of a negative aspect of it is uh, the look at the role of the elected representative okay that also fundamentally changes in the sense that you know there has been an age old debate about what is the role of the elected representative is he an ambassador for whatever the constituent thing or he or she can apply their mind to a particular policy problem right there is edmund burke's famous uh, speech to the electors of bristol uh, it talks about all these right so now imagine how will that play out when everyone is radically networked uh, it becomes difficult for a person to take a position against the stream of opinion which already exists so imagine already people have hardened their opinions and stance uh, through a radically networked community mobilized on that. will that uh, representative can they afford to take a position against this become slightly difficult and it also might lead to something of a status quo bias in the sense you're scared of doing anything at all mm. because doing anything at all raises the risk for you from a radically networked and very polarized uh, populist so you just try to sort of stay invisible and stay out of trouble yeah. let's end on a positive note though yeah. the note. that there might be some uh, imagined identities which are formed across the barriers of our nation state across the barriers of uh, our uh, immediate communities right which uh, are there so therein lies the hope that these new communities will be able to transcend some of the already existing fault lines and they will push the agenda of the governments in a direction which is beneficial for both sides across that and who knows this community could be listeners of the seen and the unseen yeah. we can call them unseeners <laughs> pranay thank you so much for coming on the show again thanks amit if you enjoyed listening to this episode do check out the papers i refer to which will be linked from the show notes you can follow pranay on twitter at pranay kotas 
वन वर्ड यू कैन फॉलो मी एट अमित वर्मा ए एम आई टी वी ए आर एम ए यू कैन ब्राउज पास्ट एपिसोड ऑफ द सीन इन दीन एट सीन एन सीन डॉट आई एन एंड थिंक प्रगति डॉट कॉम द सीन एन दी अनसीन इज सपोर्टेड बाई द तक्षशिला इंस्टीट्यूशन वेर आर गुड फ्रेंड प्रणय वर्क सो चेक आउट मोर अबाउट द पब्लिक पॉलिसी कोर्सेज एट तक्षशिला डॉट ऑग डॉट इन थैंक यू फॉर लिसनिंग एंड गो आउट एंड प्रोटेस्ट समवेयर टूडे Thank you.